you know, making movies is hard. Making movies is hard. Welcome. This is the podcast about the struggle of being an independent filmmaker. I'm Oliver Purcell, the founding host of the podcast. And I'm a sci-fi horror filmmaker. And my first feature film, The Alternate, is coming out in 2022. So I can't wait for you to see it. I'm Liz Manischel. I'm a writer, director, producer who has made two features, Bread and Butter and Speed of Life. And I'm currently in development on about five more. I'm a distribution consultant who used to manage Sundance's creative distribution initiative. And I also do sales. This week, we welcome writer and showrunner for Halt and Catch Fire. His name is Christopher Cantwell, and he's amazing. He's going to talk to us about how he sold the show, what it's like to run a show for the first time, and also about his first feature. After we talked to Christopher, we discussed an article from IndieWire about the regional film festival crisis. And then I also ask Ulrich a question about audience reactions to his films. But first, Ulrich, what's going on? How are you? Doing good. Yeah, it's still in the throes of delivering my movie. We had a big problem where we had to get the M&E track refilled or f- completely filled because we thought we could go with a partial filled one. And then, of course, no, my international distributor said, nah, ain't going to happen. You have to get it fully filled. So someone right now is filling it for us. So that's exciting. I've, it's so funny. I've had like mo- really weird emotions on this because like it, it felt like I was done, you know, for a moment because like I, I prepped all the files. I like prepped the drives. I like sent it off to the QC person and I was like, okay, we're good. And then obviously this thing came back and there's lots of changes. So then I did it again. I like made the changes, like got the film ready and it's like going out again. And like, I'm going to be delivering a lot of files to my domestic distributor this week in addition to my international distributor. So I'm like getting this feeling of being done, like rising up in me again. Like it's about to be over. You're about to have all the files delivered. It's going to be great. But like, I haven't done it yet. So it's sort of like a cheat, you know, <laughs> I feel like this week, like I'm going to get a bunch of stuff sent in and then, you know, we'll be like one step closer to like being ready to like, just have the movie be taken over by somebody else and off to the races. But That's yeah, how about so you? Nice. What you? I love it when you hand off. I think what the corollary of that is that I've never, I haven't plugged in my drives for either feature for the past five years. And I'm like, oh, this is what we should also be encouraging people to do is like reconnecting the footage from time to time and archiving because yes. you're never fully done. You're never fully done. Oh, God. yeah. But you will be done soon. What's going on with me? Our daycare is closed for this week because there was a kid who tested positive as well as a worker there who tested positive. So I'm with the kiddo this week and have canceled a lot of appointments and meetings and other news the score for my short film witchy is amazing it's getting really really good the amazing composer name is amy summers she sent a few drafts and something wasn't feeling quite right and i talked to sean about it and we're like let's listen to some 80s horror film scores and we listened to suspiria which actually i think is 70s but there's like these bells in suspiria from goblin and now our score is heavily influenced by Goblin's Bells. <laughs> <laughs> and it's making me really, really excited. So that's going well. So, you know, you win some, you lose some. Sounds exciting. Yeah. But what's also exciting is to support us on Patreon. It's a way to fund the podcast and to keep it going. You can head over to, to www.patreon.com slash MMIH podcast. And we want to celebrate Simon Smith who's become our most recent Patreon patron. We want to wish Simon a happy birthday because that's how we celebrate the people who are helping make the show with us. So happy birthday, Simon Smith. We really appreciate you. Happy birthday. Happy birthday, Simon. (laughs) Also, we have a wonderful partnership with the International Screenwriting Association. The ISA is an organization designed to connect writers with filmmakers. And they even have a top 25 writers list featuring some of their best writers. And if you want to head over to www.networkisa.org, you could sign up for free. But without any more delay and promotion and jibber-jabber, here's our chat with Christopher Cantwell. So, Christopher, thank you so much for joining us. We're going to start off with a few rapid-fire questions about your film, The Parts You Lose. Can you give us the elevator pitch for the movie? Oh, boy. I... Child living in rural North Dakota finds an injured criminal on the frozen river by his house, and he drags the man to his family's abandoned dairy barn and nurses him back to health. But the boy is deaf. 
So he has to learn how to communicate with this guy and then has to learn whether or not this guy is a good person or not because he is a cold-blooded killer. (laughs) And then how many days did you shoot the film? 37 days on a 30-day schedule. (laughs) Wow. (laughs) What can you speak of to the resources and budget that you had? I think we had a budget of about $8 million and we shot it in Winnipeg, Manitoba, which doubled for rural North Dakota. It's only about an hour and a half north. So it looked very similar. And it was negative 20 degrees Celsius, I think, during the coldest part of shooting. It was colder in Winnipeg than it was on Mars in the month of December of that year. <laughs> yeah. And then how did you come up with the idea for the movie? Oh, I didn't. I didn't write the film. A gentleman named Darren Lemke wrote the film. And I was approached to direct the script by producer Mark Johnson and Tom Williams. Mark had produced my television show, Halt and Catch Fire. And when that went off the air in 2017, Mark called me about a month or so after I was wrapped up on post and and asked me if I wanted to direct this movie. And and I was kind of the last one on the train. It was a six-year kind of passion project for Mark and Aaron Paul, the lead. And they came to me and talked to me. And and then I said, okay, so when are we going to do this movie? And they said, we're leaving in 10 days. And so I had a conversation with my wife because she had just had our second son who was about two or three months old at the time. And I was supposed to be home because I was finally finished with my TV show. But I was all of a sudden going to Canada for four months. And I I shot it from... I was in Canada from, I think, end of September to uh, end of the following year. You do pretty much answer the next question, but I'm going to ask it anyway. And you can just take take a pass if you want. Uh, How long did you spend working on the film from being brought on to its release? Well, I shot, I mean, I I left right away. So production was fairly quick, right? It was was four months and it was pretty intense. But following that, I was able to come back and then edit the film over 2018. That was in Southern California where I live. And then I went up and sound mixed it for three weeks in Vancouver then it was color timed and all of that. And it didn't, it didn't release until the following year, I believe. So I was kind of um, off doing other stuff for you know, several months before it came out. And then compared to all the other projects you've made, how difficult was uh, this one? It was very difficult in that I had never done a feature before. It was my first feature to direct. I had done a few episodes of my own show, but it's just a different ballgame when it's a film. And I think that the differences between a film production schedule, a film post schedule, and TV is is really different. So the learning curve there was was big, but also just something I wasn't used to. It's just it's I had to learn the the different speed and tempo of of movie making as opposed to TV making. In doing research for this interview, I was blocked in the questions that I wanted to ask because I was like, I don't know how to define Christopher. Like you do a lot. Is there a world where you would, wouldn't mind just kind of pitching yourself and your professional interests to the audience to start sure, the show? Yeah. I've been a TV writer and showrunner for about a decade now. I, my first show and the show that I've had on is a show called Halt and Catch Fire, which was on AMC for four seasons, 2014 to 2017. I am the director of The Parts You Lose. I'm also an executive producer on the first season of Paper Girls, which is coming out on Amazon Prime sometime next year, I believe. And I'm also a comic book writer. So I write Iron Man for Marvel and a few other titles from indie labels as well, like Boom Studios and Vault Comics, Burger Books and Dark Horse. I've got a lot of different comic books that are, that are out and about at this moment. Those are the things I do. <laughs> wow. <laughs> I think the thing that's the most interesting to me is like how you become a showrunner of your own show, especially when, you know, like you do so many other things. So like you just talk about like how, cause like Halt and Catch Fire, that was your first show, right? That you said? Yes. Yeah. It was my first, I mean, I was not a professional writer when I sold Halt with Chris Rogers. So, you know, Chris and I decided to write together in 2010 and, you know, we looked at what we wanted to get out of a partnership working together. And we said, well, maybe ultimately in five to 10 years, we'll have our own show or something like that would be the brass ring. And the first thing we, well, the second thing we wrote, the first thing we wrote got us representation. And they say, right. They said, write something else to see if we can staff you. And 
the second thing we wrote was halt and catch fire and they were able to to take that to amc and they were interested in it and it was just kind of right place right time and i think the material was strong enough that they took a chance on it and we ended up in development on that for a year and they brought in some producers mark johnson who i mentioned produced parts you lose and then melissa bernstein his partner at the time and they had just done breaking bad or were doing breaking bad at the time and we ended up getting the pilot greenlit and then chris and i went and shot the pilot in atlanta georgia with the crew and the producers for the network and then they picked it up in the summer of 2013 and at the time you know we had never been in a writers room so the first writers room we kind of we walked into was our own in a, in a sense they brought in a showrunner at that time an executive producer a guy named jonathan lisco who right now is the executive producer one of the executive producers of yellow jackets which everybody loves Yay! um and I'm watching yes and he was very magnanimous and kind of a mentor to us. And everything that we do as showrunners, we learned from, from Jonathan's playbook. And, and the first two seasons, he was there and we kind of ran it with him. The second season, he was very transparent. And then he left to go do Animal Kingdom at TNT. And then we took over and did the last two seasons, just Chris and I. And since then, Chris and I, we had one project that actually did not make it to full series at AMC. And then the two of us came on in kind of a Jonathan Lisko capacity to Paper Girls for a writer who had sold the adaptation with Brian K. Vaughn, a writer named Stephanie Folsom, who had just recently co-written Toy Story 3 and is actually a very prolific and successful screenwriter on the feature side of things. So we came in with TV expertise and the three of us ran the show through a lot of the first season. And that's where that is now. Yep. Maybe Silvolta asked why you left Paper Girls or do you not want to talk about that? I think there was, there was a lot of unique pressure points on that series. We also ran into something called the pandemic, which I think we're still <laughs> in and probably will be when this airs. By the time we got through breaking that first season and then finishing that season remotely on a you know, unique platform called Zoom that we all had to suddenly learn. I was also homeschooling my older son at the time. I was teaching him the school district curriculum at home. And he was sitting next to me at the dining room table while I was helping run the paper girl's room on my computer at the same time. Wow. My wife had gone back to teaching. So she was teaching. She taught him the first semester and I did the second. We did that because I didn't want him to just sit on Zoom all day. So we were teaching him the curriculum. I said, you know what? I'm going to step away and focus on some other things. And so I stepped away to largely work on my comic books and some other smaller projects that I had in development at the time. And Chris was extremely supportive, as was Steph. And Chris has carried that thing through production. I think they shot the first season and it's wrapped. And I believe they're, they're, they're going to be continuing writing pretty soon. So I'm excited to see how it turns out because the stuff that came out of that room is amazing. And the original graphic novel is incredible. Brian K. Vaughn is just a genius and, and not just a genius. He's one of the nicest and, and, and smartest people I've met. So... It was a really cool opportunity. The normal trajectory for these interviews is like someone has a dream and then they work 20 years to get in the room and then they have that single trajectory of the, their career that they follow. We started off our conversation with you kind of like a bullet train almost like and then you're, you got the job. Can you talk a little bit about what your dreams were coming into the industry? Was it working in comic books and then you got interested in television or was it the reverse? And It was the reverse. I mean, what I wanted to do when I was younger, I mean, I, I, I think the movie going experience was the thing that was a big deal for me when I was a kid, right? And I think through adolescence, I even looked at just going to the movie theater was such a big deal for my parents and I. It was something I did. I was an only child. We did it almost every weekend. I think I looked in like the years of like 89 through like 92 or something, I think I saw upwards of like 40 to 45 movies a year in the theater. I think some of that begs like content guidelines with my parents, which is, <laughs> you know, I thought JFK when I was nine, which is like not a good movie to see when you're nine. There's just no, no bones about that. And I just loved movies, right? And my, my, my dad loved movies as well. My mom loved old movies. So I grew up watching you know, everything from Greece to Meet Me in St. Louis to, you know, McClintock, John Wayne, and then, you know, thriller stuff with my dad, and then found my own tastes up through high school. And, you know, that's, that was the main reason I applied to film school. I applied to USC film school. I got into the screenwriting program and I was an undergraduate. 
And I wanted to write and direct movies. I think that was, that was the main thing I, I wanted to write them because I, I loved the process of writing them. I loved the creation of that. And I, I think the directing aspect came out of wanting to incarnate the thing you wrote, right? I think that's the, that's the cool thing. I think that the screenplay is the blueprint for the thing, right? It's not the thing. It's the, it's the, the other thing. It's the, 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 the map. And so I wanted to, to experience doing all of that. So the directing was almost out of necessity for wanting to fully realize the stuff I was writing. And, you know, I came out of film school and like everybody and had no idea what to do and had the assistant jobs and had the production coordinating jobs and was doing weird commercial work and weird documentary work and making short films over here and doing, you know, IO West over here and, and all kinds of stuff. And years go by and I ended up because of the short films and things I had been doing and some of the production coordinating work, I ended up working at a company that was a startup and it got acquired by Disney. And then I was a creative director for Disney and I was making things, but I was making things that were about the other bigger things, right? So it was like a few steps removed and it was fun. I did it for three years and I got to work with Pixar and a bunch of the directors up there. And, you know, I got to go do behind the scenes stuff at the theme parks and, you know, all that kind of stuff and be in Disneyland when it was closed and all that kind of weird stuff. But that was there that I met Chris Rogers and, and he was the one I will credit Chris forever as the one who kind of brought me into the medium of TV. I think I had missed some of the quote unquote good TV of the late nineties, early two thousands. I think I just, I was an upperclassman in high school and then off to college. So I wasn't seeing the West wing. I wasn't watching the Sopranos. I wasn't seeing those things. And, and I had just kind of taken notice of mad men. And <laughs> when Chris and I, figured out after a year of working together that we were both writers over beers. He, he said, I should read the, the pilot for breaking bad written by Vince Gilligan. And I read that pilot and it was really amazing. And I just, uh, the cohesiveness and the clarity and the leanness of the script and how you could really see it. And then how it kind of set so much up without having to do the full story that you made you, it, leave, it left you wanting more in a way that I, I, I was, it was new to me, right? I'd done some TV writing classes in college, but not a ton. And reading that script really changed things for me and crystallized for me. And at that point, I took a feature that I was writing and I started to turn it into a, pi into a pilot with Rogers. And he started to give me input on that. And that was the first thing we wrote together. And that's what got us representation. And all of a sudden, I was in the world of television. And it was, you know, it was, it was a good time to be in the world of television because this was 2010. So Mad Men was on, Breaking Bad was on and just starting to pick up steam. The Walking Dead was either premiering or about to, right? you were getting shows like Friday Night Lights that were getting canceled, but then also people were discovering them and Netflix was about to start streaming and all of these things, right? It wasn't just DVDs anymore. And people were, you know, people were still watching The Wire on DVD, which I probably did around that time, you know, like, so you, I started to discover all that golden age TV as it was being made and as it was almost kind of ending. And then we were, we were right at the end of that kind of first wave, kind of as it transitioned into the big, blossoming beast that it is now with 500 different channels and, you know, a thousand different scripted shows. So um, it was a, it was an interesting time to do that, but it was always movies for me. That's where, that's where it started. It, it really started there. Can you talk about vicariously? Cause this is, seems to be before halt and, what was that? Was that another show that you sold or how, how were you a part of that? It's a really funny show. So that wasn't, that was an online, that was a web series and, that was a pilot kind of experiment, pilot in a different sense of the term, an experimental program. We brought in two comedians at this startup that I was working at. I think this was either right as it got acquired by Disney or, or not, but people were really trying to figure out online stuff, right? I think this was, you know, Facebook was, there was that offer put forward where, you know, I think, I forgot who, somebody wanted to buy Facebook for 50 million, right? Which is, if you think of the valuation now, it's like, what? You know, and it was too, two comedians who came in and the idea was to run it like a mini writer's room. And they, it was, it was an original concept from those two guys. And I was really just an executive at that startup that kind of got to participate in the making of that and oversee it and quote unquote, kind of produce it. But I mean, it was tiny. It's funny that it ended up on IMDb because I feel like stuff from that era is like infinitely smaller than something you might find on YouTube now that would never have a chance of being put on IMDb. But at that moment, I think even IMDb was trying to figure out what online stuff was. And it was, it was that type of stuff that actually led me to meeting 
Eric, Eric Toms, <laughs> you know, who I know is a our producer. Podcast. Yes. He's associated with the podcast. So Eric, you know, we were doing a bunch of just online content. This is what this company was that we did. And we met Eric that way. And Eric was the host of a reality show at that point. It was, it was on a channel called Fox Reality, which I don't even think exists anymore. And Eric was the host. And so we got together with Eric and Eric had some ideas of different online things that he could do or that we could do for the show. And some of the ideas came from us and we just ended up hitting it off with Eric and making a bunch of, you know, like random videos for this show that, you know, existed for a blip in time. And then we, you know, the, the best thing that came out of that was Eric, you know, I still, I'm still, you know, <laughs> still hang out with Eric. I mean, I don't even remember what we did, you know, it was like that kind of disposable content, you know, that was the, that was the time of the internet. It was weird. I want to ask about the emotional experience of being, of having your own show and having that like massive jump professionally. I mean, did you feel like you were walking into rooms and people were listening to you in a different way? Is it, is it the myth of success that we all assume it is? Did it feel like a massive boon to you or did it feel like just an, another day? It was, I mean, it was a massive thing. I mean, I, I think when that happened and I, I, you know, when they decided to pick up and develop the pilot script, I mean, that was the first writing I had sold professionally. And that, that's always a big moment. I think when that happens for somebody, there was a lot of waiting, you know, and then the development process can be pretty foggy. You know, you're kind of moving through in this weird nonlinear way. And the executives at AMC, I mean, I worked with them for almost 10 years and I still work with some of them. I really love them. They're very smart people. But when you're a brand new writer, you're trying to make someone happy or not make them happy, but make them happy with the material. And you're learning how to do that. You know, And I think the screenwriting program at SC had only prepared me somewhat for that workshop setting. And it was different in that it was hierarchical. Right? We had executives to, to, to you know, please essentially professionally in terms of the material. The studio was the network. So that was, that was interesting. We had producers who were our allies. I think the choice of producer was really important to us. And I'm really glad with the, the, the ones we got just because they were able to advocate for us. Because when you come in, I had this feeling of being at the same time, like a, a, like a big deal that had just sold a show and then also very, very small, just because I had never done anything. Every other writer that was in that writer's room had more experience than we did professionally everybody had been making more television professionally than we had. And so it was down to what notes we agreed with or didn't agree with. We didn't know what we were allowed to, to not do or push back against or things like that. And it was, it was stuff like that, that Melissa and Mark at, at Gran Villa were really helpful with. You know, They were able to guide us. And I think they really helped save the show because we were just two guys. We didn't know what we were doing. We were doing everything that the network told us to do but the network, as smart as those executives are, they're not writers. They're not supposed to be. And they've got a million different projects. And, and they're looking to you for the singular vision of the show at a certain point. So they'll make suggestions or notes or comments or things like that. But they're expecting you to weed through that and find the, the clarity of purpose in all of that. And Chris and I had trouble with that, I think, in that first year in 2012. And, and then, you know, like... <laughs> It wasn't like some spec sale, like from the nineties, you know, it wasn't like a million and a half against two, you know, it wasn't, it was, I mean, I, I, we sold that script and it was, you know, it was a, a non-negotiable option deal. It was because mm -hmm. it was the first deal we ever had. And we were individuals, you know, we weren't incorporated because we weren't making enough money. And I remember I got that first check that I was waiting for months for, and it was like $2,000, you know, and it, it was, it was really tough, you know? And, and I mean, I think I went to I went to a Mexican restaurant with my wife at the time when we got that check. And I was like, I blew my life up. Like this was a waste. Why did I do this with my life? And I, I had left a, a pretty good job at Disney at that point to, to try to do this. And it was what I always wanted to do, but it was hard to see the proof in the pudding for a while. That said, the experience of you know working with Mark, like having Mark Johnson come out of the conference room, I still remember the first time I met him and this guy's producing Breaking Bad and him shaking our hands and saying, this is one of the best pilots I've ever read. And like this guy accepted the Academy Award for Rain Man in 89. Like that kind of thing was amazing. And, and, and then when we actually got to Atlanta, I got to shoot the pilot. I mean, that was, it was like a dream come true and a panic attack all wrapped up into one, you know, it was, it was intense. Well, well as the show continued and, you know, you didn't get canceled and you got greenlit and the pilot was accepted and you, 
then money starts to come, right? Because then you have like regular paychecks and everything. It was just the very initial like check from the the sale that was disappointing. <laughs> no, I'm still dirt poor. No, I <laughs> I would say yeah. I mean, it, it's all kind of incremental. Everything is right. I mean, I think including your 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 financial whatever they call you know your quotes, your inside quotes for your deals, like the percentages of your you know who's your agent, who's not, you know, your managers, your lawyer, all of that stuff, and the the things you can ask for it it's a slow growth it's definitely a marathon over like i def i there are certain people and writers i know who i'm friends with who had the big sale at the game right that that happens too it doesn't happen as much as it did maybe 20 years ago or before that but it still can happen but but we definitely felt like tradesmen who who worked our way up right and you know the, it's the the audience and the draw of the show dictates everything from your creative control your your ability to push back on notes your titling, your 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 deal, like all of that stuff. So we always felt like we were in there earning it because we were never a show with extremely high ratings. The first season, you know, critics, it felt like people had long knives out for AMC at that point because they had two of the best shows ever made and the highest rated cable show ever were their first three shows. And then they'd had some other shows that had come out that like The Killing, which which the first you know couple seasons of that I actually thought were pretty cool. And they had some other shows that that everybody else had kind of called missteps, and so I think they were waiting for whatever we were going to do to kind of carve it up. It just felt like that was it was AMC's time to be brought down from being too close to the sun, right? And that you know that happened, and I, and I think subsequently we were we were lucky enough to get a second chance and the third and the fourth, and 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 because of AMC still believing in the show, the audience came right. It just came later. And I think people still continue to find the show. And, and I think it just came off Netflix, which is funny. I think Netflix streaming helped us as well. Um, but it just came off streaming to go onto AMC Plus, which is their streaming platform. So yeah, I, I would say, you know, yeah, it, it all goes up. It all, it all is, continues to trend upward, but it's incremental. And this industry has a way of putting the fear of God in you that the, whatever you're working on, it's the last thing you're ever going to write. It's the last thing you're ever going to do. And I still feel that way 10 years in. And by the way, my husband worked on Halt and Catch Fire. <laughs> oh, but he was—he was your—he was your post PA. Oh, but his name is Sean Wright. That's awesome. I was like, oh, I remember this. That's so cool. I wanted to talk a little bit about having a, a very diverse career and whether it's helped or hindered you. I mean, is the—is the dream still just to work? Is it to go back into features, or have you found? A home in TV, or is it to dip between all of these different mediums? It's funny. I, I it would. I think it was probably more singular a, a long time ago. You know, I think now. I think when when I when Chris and I sold that first pilot script, I was 29, and I just turned 40 last November. To me, what's most important, and what I still feel like I have the juice for, at the risk of sounding you know gooey, is is I just want wherever I can get away with. Because it does feel like that. Get away with <laughs> telling stories that convey how I feel and also help make our mortgage payment at my house. It feels good to me. <laughs> I, I love television. I, I think I, I, that process was so cool in making that show. And it's funny, right? You talked about people having the, the 10, 20, 25 year plan of then growing to getting their own show. And we had that. And Chris and I, it was, it felt like such a, a Cinderella story, one that was kind of a decade in the making, but we feel weird talking about it so much sometimes because it feels like we're looking back on our high school football days. And it, it's scary where you think like the first thing you did, okay, that's, you know, and then, and then you're fighting to get back in that room for a long time. So I, I definitely have that awareness about me. That said, I, I love television. I, I, I think it, it's, it feels consistent in a way of like a guy that grew up you know, with like a, a, a dad that went to an office every day <laughs> feels consistent, you know, features are weird. Cause it's just, you're just sitting there waiting for, and I have, you know, one or two where it's like years go by and you're like, uh, what's that. And then all of a sudden someone calls and says, Oh, we're so close to scheduling this. And we got a financing offer and blah. And then, you know, but the high of that, I don't trust it until I'm like nine days into shooting something. Right. And TV just feels so consistent in that way. And then there's this, AMC continues to be a place where you can go make weird TV. There's a lot of places where you can go make weird television. You know what I mean? And, and you can just go do something weird and not have everybody on your back. And that's huge. You know, that said, I still am that kid who, you know, write and direct a movie 
of my own is, would be amazing. You know, that's incredible. And, and comics were a huge thing for me when I was in grade school and middle school, just as a reader and stumbling into that world headlong and just that kind of little feedback loop. And it's an industry that shrank like every industry, but it shrank so much that everybody you meet is really only doing it because they love it. Right. So there's no agenda really with, uh, with most people you meet in comics. And that's been really lovely to discover that community. So I, I like all of it. I'd like to keep doing all of it as long as I have time for my kids and, you know, don't go crazy. So, so I just want to ask really quick about like where you're at now. So like you, you've had a show for four seasons, you're on another show for one season of development and then you left. And now, you know, you're at this place, like to me as, as a person looking in, it's like, oh, well, this guy's got all the opportunity in the world, you know, like you've got all the experience, like you can, you know, but what is the reality? Like, are you able to go pitch shows and pitch movies and like have people listen to you? Or is it the struggle where it is now? I know you mentioned you have some projects that are, you know, unannounced that you're working on, but like, can you just talk about like what your process is at this stage? Sure. Yeah. I mean, I, I think it, it was, it was a weird decision to leave paper girls. It's always weird to do that, but it, one that's ultimately understandable because I think everybody understands the stresses of the industry, but you know, I, I left and then you're, you know, not making money and you're not doing anything. I mean, I was writing comics and I think that did help last year. It has been a weird couple of years in industry because of the pandemic. I mean, it's been even weird in comic books from everything from, you know, store closings and paper shortages mm -hmm. and things like this. But I feel like last year, I, I feel like I have to be dynamic in getting things out there. Right. So I, and, and I, I don't mean just like hustling, like I don't have the energy to do that. I have to be writing, right? I think, and I have to be bothering people about things I've been writing, right? I think that I always believe that the writer or whoever the artist is, is their own best agent, right? Their own representative. And so a lot of, a lot of what I'm doing comes from that. And I was fortunate enough at the end of last year to, to sell a show of my own where I'm, I'm the showrunner. It'll be without Chris, which is weird. Cause I'll like, you know, go to look to my right and be like, what do you think? And there's like no one there. So that'd be fine. <laughs> <laughs> I stumbled into a job uh, doing an animation series, which is something I've never done before, but kind of combines things from, you know, television and then also comic books and, 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 and brings them together in, in an interesting way. So I'm, I'm interested to see how that goes. I can write a producer or any a given producer that I might know or have a rapport with or my agents or, my managers or whatever, and say, where are the rights to this? Or, you know what I'd really like to do is this. And I will probably be humored to a point of like, okay. And like, they might chase that down and they might have to be reminded and, you know, it might not be realistic or there might be 18 different writers pitching on that or, and they're all more interesting than I am with their credits or whatever it is. But I, I can, I can cut through the noise, I think. And I have some agency over that in terms of my ability to do so, right? It's just how, how hard am I willing to push? But I can call folks. I can, you know, write other people and say, I, I have this new idea. Right now, I feel lucky enough to... I, like, I, I have a movie project. It is something that I wrote that I'm attached to direct that I've been trying to move forward with Melissa Bernstein, who was the other producer on Halt and Catch Fire. And that seems to be going really well. But again, it's like long play. It's like, it's like back betting on a craps table where you put it down and then you just walk away for a few hours and come back after a few drinks. And you're like, whoa, look, or it's gone, you know? And you're like, whoops, <laughs> it really feels like that. And the TV things I have have all been through, oh, I know these executives at this comic book company who are responsible for adaptation. And I was a big fan of this book, even though I have my other book with the comic book company. And when you know it, they had it set up at X streamer and, you know, I really love that book. Maybe I come in and pitch on that. And, you know, all of a sudden I'm, I'm running that show, you know, like it, it's a, it's a, or like, here's some producers I didn't work on with this one project. I went with someone else over here, but they came back to me with this project and it was really cool. And we just really like each other and like hanging out and working together. So it's, it's the group of people. I think I have enough, I guess the long way to answer your question is there's enough people that I like and trust that I can call and say, Hey, do you want to do something or should we do this? And, and there's a good chance they may say yes, if it's a possibility, as much as anything is. <laughs> With our remaining four minutes, I think we're going to do rapid fire, six questions that are rapid fire, if that's okay with you, Christopher. Yeah. So first question is, what's the first script you wrote or first film you made and how do you feel about it now? <laughs> I actually have the first film I wrote. It's in my, my nightstand over there. I wrote it when I was 16. 
and it's terrible. It's like a feature. I got I like there was like one summer I did I you know I went to Barnes and Noble and got the book Screenwriters Bible and I wrote this movie about an agoraphobic man who falls in love with a woman who walks by his window every day on her way to work. <laughs> and it's terrible and it's in my nightstand. So I hate it, but I keep it there because it reminds me of what I was, what I once was as a writer, right? I think it's important to, to have that stuff. And also just as a, an heirloom that my kids can read and see that their dad was really just a, a shit hack, you know, <laughs> like, since the beginning. What's the best filmmaking advice you've ever received? Oh man, I think, boy, let me see those best filmmaking experience I've received. Oh, I think my, my, my senior year thesis teacher at SC was a writer named Jack Epps, who with Jim Cash wrote Top Gun and Secret of My Success and Legal Eagles and Dick Tracy. And he's just a wonderful guy. And he taught that you can restate a great movie in terms of its relationships between the people only and leave all of the plot details out. So you can talk about Star Wars without mentioning Jedi or lightsabers or planets at all. And that if you can do that with your own story adequately, and it feels engaging on its own, in that regard, then you can dress it up with whatever plot you want because it's working and it's about people. And, and I, I, I live by that. I, I, I steal that all the time in the writer's room. And I might even be go, I might go guest teach at a, a school in the spring and for a little bit and I'll be ripping off Jack Epps for sure. I love that. What's the worst filmmaking advice you've ever received? <laughs> I mean, oh boy, there's been so much. Most of it. <laughs> Whatever I happen to accidentally see on screenwriting Twitter that day. No. <laughs> um, I would say, God, I, God, worst is hard. It's funny. You know, I think I immediately thought of like when we first sent out the Halt and Catch Fire <laughs> pilot to like everyone you know, you know, that you've gathered over the last 10 years. We got message back from some, a message back from someone that was like, "This this isn't a pilot. Like, what you should do is read this." <laughs> Which <laughs> it was like the, the worst thing I'd ever read. You know, it was like one of those things where like they were really derisive and 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 condescending in the email, and then attached a sample of something they thought was really good that was just terrible. <laughs> so, if anything, that was like just that was like uh, good advice. And that again, it's the William Goldman thing of like no one knows anything, right? Where you're just like, wow, this person is completely up their own ass. Like, uh, awesome. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I can't even think of what would be the worst. There's been so much. God, I think we have to skip to the last question, Ulrich. Yeah, is making movies hard? Final question. Yes. What I always say is that movie making is against God in that you are trying to recreate his grandeur and effortlessness of reality and get away with it. And so it's incredibly impossible and you have to do it with heavy lights and cables and unions and all kinds of stuff. And, you know, you're freezing to death and it's dangerous and stupid and, you know, soul killing and, and you just want to go to sleep, you know, while you're on set. And it is definitely, definitely hard. But as an executive said that I worked with at Disney, like, is it making blood plasma and saving lives? No, no. It's also fun. It's that too. It's like silly. You know what I mean? It's like the hardest silly thing you can do with your life. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. Hardest silly thing. Really good. Thank you for being on the show. Christopher, sell your wares. Tell us how we can support you, how we can follow you. Oh boy. Let's see. Well, I'm on Twitter. I'm at if you can't well, which is where I hang out sometimes. I'm writing Iron Man for Marvel. I've got a couple of series with Boom Studios. One is called Regarding the Matter of Oswald's Body, which is about the JFK assassination, but it's kind of an oddball way in at the miniseries that's on shelves now. I am writing Angel from Buffy the Vampire Slayer <gasps> Moore. That launches on January 19th. There's an eight-issue series I'm doing about Angel, which is very fun because I'm a huge fan of that show. Go on. Yes, yes. I've got a comic with Vault that is a 10-issue series that's about to wrap up in the next few months called The Blue Flame. And yeah, Halt and Catch Fire, I believe, is now on AMC+. I don't know where you can find that, but it is out there. I love how your early exposure to JFK came full circle. <laughs> well, Chris, and I, Chris Rogers and I had a script on the blacklist about the JFK assassination like back in the day, the same year we sold Halt. Yeah, I finally decided to write about it again because it's just a preoccupation of mine. Ulrich, what do you remember about our chat with Christopher? 
I remember that he was very interesting and very, like, different than I was expecting a showrunner to be. Like, I thought that he would be more, like, commanding and more, like, I don't know, more like a really ultra-confident, super, like, buttoned-up person. And not saying that he isn't that kind of person, but he just seemed more humble and more like a like an artist, like a screenwriter and a writer, and just, like, not like this person who holds such a powerful position on the show. But I guess maybe that's the lesson is that, you know, showrunners are just writers. They are just filmmakers. They're not necessarily these, you know, amazing, like, forceful creatures that have this ability to command, like, a whole series over many, many episodes. It's just like, you're just a person like anyone else, you know? And I think that's kind of a weird thing to say is my takeaway is that he was just a person. But maybe, maybe he wasn't. And he's so successful. And this is another example of a person who, like, like, who's there? They have made it. They are there. They are in a position where they can, like, quit a show and it's not a bad thing. And they're going to, like, go make a feature and maybe another show or whatever. They have multiple things lining up in the future. And it's like, he definitely didn't seem like he felt like he made it. But he has. <laughs> and I just another example of that, I guess. Yeah, he was really calm, which is always off-putting to me. So I get it. I'm like, how are you so calm in life? What did you do right? I also remember that halfway through the interview, I realized that my husband worked for him for a little bit. I think Sean's one of his first jobs in post-production was working for a halt and catch fire. So I mentioned that as we end the recording, I was like, oh, by the way, you know, do you remember Sean Wright in, in the edit room? And he was very sweet. So yeah, I know what you're saying about the kind of relatability of Christopher. Also, what was really amazing is the way he talked about the budget of his first feature. I think he said it was like eight or I mean, I'm going to kick myself, but it was like eight or nine million dollars, right? For his first feature. And I was like, oh, my gosh, that's so amazing. And then I was like, well, of course it is. I mean, he was a showrunner for Home Catch Fire. But it's still it's this great evidence that there can be crossover between TV and comic book and graphic novel and indie feature success. So it was a nice lesson to learn. It also kind of reinforces a lot of what I've been thinking lately is that like once you're like, you got to like get to this level where you're successful and you've made something that people care about and that people like want to pay money for. And then once you're there, then the opportunities to get hired on something like his first feature are kind of like more open to you. But it's like before you're there, like where you get to the point where you've sold something that people deem they want to pay money for, you're not in the game really in a way. And so I feel like there's this th- feeling in me where it's like, I want to get into the game level. And it's like, you know, w- what gets you there? I don't know. It's like the right movie, the right sale of that movie. I don't know, meeting the right person who likes you. And then they decide, oh, yeah, your work is great. Let's do it. You know, but uh, wherever, whatever it is, he's there. And I would love to be there, too. <laughs> I've called that the table. It's interesting that you call that the level, but I call it sitting at a table. (laughs) Right. My analogy is a lot more boring. I'm like, I just want to sit at a table. And you're like, I want to play the big boss in another level of a game. (laughs) I like you also, it's called like riding the elevator, you know, like, it's like, I I like the table. I want to seat at the table or I want to be on the elevator, yeah. you know, it's These like really like pedestrian things, but they represent yeah. so much excitement for us. Yeah, yeah it's funny. <laughs> well, what's also very exciting is the world of <laughs> film festivals. And I mean, I'm not kidding. Like, you know, like literally being on the film festival circuit with your movie is a really exciting thing. And this article posted on IndieWire written by Eric Cohn is talking about the state of regional film festivals and why they matter. And it's called Want to Save the Movies? Invest in regional film festivals. It is really interesting. Like he's basically talking about how there's this grant that's happening through the National Endowment for the Arts, where they're supporting all these different art organizations with like a fifty thousand, a hundred thousand, or one hundred fifty thousand dollar grant. Nearly like six hundred film festivals and different film arts organizations have applied for this grant. And I guess there was like seventy five hundred applicants across all fields of art, which is like an insane amount of people like going after this grant. But basically, like, part of the article talks about how, like, all the rejection letters are starting to come into these film festivals and people aren't getting the funds. And it's starting to be like, oh, God, like, what are these film festivals going to do? So it sort of, like, outlines how hard is it to survive as a, as a regional film festival and, like, how important that little money would be to them and, like, how, like, 
they're kind of on a razor's edge on surviving or failing, you know, and that basically saying in the end, like, if you want these to exist, and this is the way that like movies besides like the studio system movies or the Marvel movies or whatever, like th- this is where the other movies can get audiences and find audiences. So if you want that to stay, support them, go to them or whatever. So that's basically what the article is in a nutshell. But what did you think of this article is? Well, I really want the regional film festivals to succeed. And what's funny is that the solution in my eyes is actually quite easy. It's have distributor sales agents actually see them as markets. Because I interview, I think it's like 78 or I attempt to interview like 78 distributors every year. And one of my questions is, what film festivals do you view as markets? What film festivals do you go to to acquire content? Which is the euphemism for a market, right? So if sales agents and distributors acquired content from or saw Cleveland International Film Festival as a real marketplace, as a viable place where they can acquire content, and the word got out, more sponsors would come, more filmmakers would submit, and more filmmakers would get chances at higher profile distribution and representation outside of the Sundance, Toronto, South by world. The problem is we don't have enough time in the year, in the week, in our lives to watch all the content being made. And we don't have enough resources to get people to screen that content. So it becomes that still small list of those top tier film festivals. But I'm just saying like the core of this is turning it and validating it as the marketplace that it is. I just started doing film festival repping for the first time. Mm. I, I got my first client and I'd been doing it informally for years. But the regional film festivals do listen and they do watch the content and they think about it. And they're so thorough and thoughtful about how they evaluate films. And usually they love the films that I end up loving and promoting to them. I just think there's like an active force there that's not partying to sponsors and lobbyists and agencies. There's hope here, but not until real money comes. And I think real money comes with press and attention and celebrities and sales agents and all this bullshit, because how else are we supposed to make it sexy? This is the evil argument, right? Like we shouldn't be arguing for these festivals to sell out. And the charm of these film festivals is that they're not Sundance. So I don't know what the solution is. It seems so clear two minutes ago. Well, I don't know. It, it seems like it's this really crazy double-edged sword because, you know, like Heartland International, for instance, like I played yeah. there this year. It was a great experience. Um, but they like bring in these like high profile movies from these big directors that are playing at these other film festivals earlier in the year, like Come On, Come On or, you know, The Electric Life of, you know, whatever, Wayne, Louis Wayne or whatever. And like the other, these like showcase movies. And the showcase movies are like what brings in some of the audience, you know, that they like want to like see these movies first before they go to other places. And so it kind of bolsters their ticket sales and then like kind of gives them a little bit more, you know, clout and like more attention. But then like there's less spots for movies like mine. And then like, you know, my movie gets played against Come On, Come On and then no one comes to my screening. There's like 10 people there and like, you know, 200 people watching Come On, Come On down, down the hall, you know. It's like a problem, but it, like they need to do that in order to grow, in order to have big audiences, in order to get press and everything. And so, I guess wh- what I'm wondering is like, what is the desire? Like, because do all these little mi- mi- mid-tier film festivals like want to grow to become their own mini Sundances? I think they but, just want to pay their staff. You know, right? I don't, I don't think the goals are that lofty. I could be wrong. I, I think maybe the key of this is true curation. So I do sales and I pitch films and a lot of films don't even get looked at. We've talked about this before, if they're not a certain genre, if they don't have certain cast. So that's not curating. That's not really discovering work and putting out to the world and, and distributing it and, and putting a worthwhile effort into getting it seen. That's just passively putting work up on platforms and seeing what comes of it, right? right. But if there were people who thought that the curation of regional film festivals were, were valid, then they would go and look at those film festivals in building their own slate for distribution. And they're not. They're not thinking of it as valid. They're thinking of all those films as small potatoes. So I talked to, you know, somebody who was in acquisitions years ago when I went to the Toronto After Dark Film Festival. And they were there to buy movies. And he was basically like, I'm not going to come next year. Like this festival has gotten to the point where 
all the movies that are good have already been so- bought by the time the festival happens because they've either been at other big festivals or they've got big enough names in them that they're not actually looking for distribution at this point. They're just using the festival as a way to like get out there. So this is kind of a waste of my time. Like I'm, I'm here enjoying this drink, enjoying this free trip, but like this was useless for me. Like I need to find another festival that like will have content that isn't already been snatched up, you know? Like, and like he was like after a certain, there was a movie that like had played there that was like good and that he wanted to like put an offer on, but like another would have distributor had already snatched it up before he had a chance to meet the filmmakers. And I don't even know if that the distributor that bought it was there, but they just like struck, struck first. And so I feel like it's a really hard thing because it's like, you have to wonder if the trip is worth it. Like, are there going to be enough movies that I could like take a look at that aren't already have deals at this festival? And like, is the content going to be at a level where it's actually going to be worth my, worth my time? And I think it's hard, but like a place like Heartland, obviously is probably one that would be up there in lists of like, Oh, I should go because there are a lot of movies that don't have distributors that are already there. But like, whether it's enough for them or not, it's like hard to say because like when the big tent poles that are bringing people in have already like, you know, or with IFC or whatever, what is there for them there? Right? Like, you know, is the alternate worth it or a movie like the alternate? Or does it need to be something that's bigger than that, you know, that would have played at, you know, whatever, bigger film festival earlier in the year? I don't, I don't know. And that's why casting, I talk about casting as being so important, because if the marketplace is filled with distributors who are just passively putting content up on platforms, then you need that name to help them <laughs> and help you get revenue because they're not really marketing your work, Right. So right. unless we can just like take a magic wand and take, you know, tell distributors to care more about distributing indie content, or there's like some angel investor who really believes in championing films and filmmakers that aren't part of the system, which is a much harder task than supporting the films that are part of the system, then we're all in trouble. But there was one thing that someone said in the article, they said, we need some element of this being exclusive and some of it being an event as well as a little bit of flexibility because people at home just do not watch films the way they do in the cinema. And I just think that the one of the core fixes of this is eventizing screenings at film festivals, because if they are in person, how do you make it way more exciting, way more fun than a VOD transaction at home or streaming something at Netflix? And then the other part of this is The Film Festival Alliance, which we spoke to a few weeks ago, is building up some sort of vetting process. I mean, they're in the beginning stages, but we need to have a certain level of accountability to separate the wheat from the chaff in film festivals, too, because there's a lot of bottom of the barrel film festivals that program just anything and don't have a voice. And then there's a lot of those ones that you're talking about, which will just kind of like suck up all of the Sundance sloppy seconds or something. And we need to make sure that we're supporting the film festivals that actually are curating new content. Well, where I think it, 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 it's okay if that happens, you know, but, but I think it, it, the only way that works is if they're actually getting audiences in the seats by for their other movies. By event Right. And like, you know, there was another filmmaker there who actually played their film at Dance with Films with, with my film. We both premiered at Dance with Films and we both went to Heartland. I can't remember the name of his movie right now, but it was a documentary. And their grassroots events coordinator person who they had just hired for their first season at, you know, Heartland, they got like a school to come to the screening of their movie and they, they filled the freaking audience. It was all these, it was a movie about science, kids and science. And so they got all these kids who were interested in science to come to the screening. And it was like this packed thing. The director was there. He had a great time. You get to like huge Q and A, meet all these wonderful kids who are interested in science and filmmaking. And, you know, it sounded like a sweet thing. So that's like a huge win for that filmmaker to like have that audience building experience at this festival. And who cares if they have like, come on, come on, do the movies playing if like they were able to give his film a voice, you know, it's it just that. didn't really work out for me, you know, because they didn't, <laughs> they didn't do that same thing with my movie. Well, <laughs> Cleveland does that as like a way of behaving <laughs> as a film festival. They right. pair up with local nonprofits, but it's that it's like, okay, did you ever do these things? I'm sure they have them where you live. Where it's like, I went to go see Elf, but outside of Elf, there was like a hot chocolate making station. And then there was also mm-hmm. like candy bag, whatever. It's like, and people wore costumes. It's what Naomi McDougal-Jones for her Bite Me Vampire tour, a joyful tour of America. It's how do you create it to be like a party? 
Like I've, mm-hmm. I had a client where I was like, your film would be great if someone was under having a lot of drugs while they were watching your movie. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, I really think you should do like a house party tour with a dispensary partnership. And like, there are things that you could do in certain states and certain cities to make it way more exciting. And the example I always bring up is that I saw Bad Batch at Beyond Fest in Los Angeles at the Egyptian Theater. And right before it, I did VR in a coffin. And I always talk about that. It was the coolest thing in the world. I was in a coffin doing VR. Bring more (laughs) coffin VR experiences across the country. Yeah. I I don't know. I I feel like, I I guess what I'm trying to say is that I feel like these regional festivals are are really like valuable to filmmakers. Yes. Whether or not they they get Sundance leftovers or not. Like, because if they can, you know, help bring audiences to these smaller movies that they are curating. And the good festivals like Heartland are curating films in a real way that actually matters. Like they actually do watch your movie. They actually do think it fits. They actually do think there's an audience for it and they pick it for that reason. It's tough at festivals too, because like you might get programmed, you know, opposite a showcase film and then you're in a hard place. And, you know, it is on the filmmaker to partner with a film festival, you know, to come up with ideas and try to bring audiences out there. And one of the things I wish I had done now that I know these people exist who are trying to bring people into specific screenings is like reach out to the film festival, see if they have a person in that position and then try to partner with them and, and give them ideas of like, Oh, well, there's this comic con that happens every year in, in your town. Like maybe we can talk to the comic con people and like they, they have a horror section or whatever, or they have a horror, you know, fan base that goes to this comic con or, or whatever it is, or a sci-fi fan base that goes to this comic-con like reach out to those people there's a huge there's a cool new sci-fi movie that's coming to the to to our festival let's get people to come out to see it you know like that i wish i would have done that but that's what an impact producer does that's what that's what people hire impact producers you know that's what i did for a year at picture motion but as a filmmaker i feel like what i'm trying to say is that like like you hear impact producer and then you think of that as like oh you're you have to have a social aspect to your movie you have to have this but you can actually i think it works for any movie yeah. You just have to like think about it out, think outside of the box. And then as the director or the writer or the filmmaker or whatever, like you can be that person to like make those connections, you know? Yeah. And I don't know. I feel like there's just, there's just so many different ways that you can try to promote your event in your, in your movie. And there's a lot of ways with a good film festival that you can partner with a film festival to do that, you know? Cause they want totally that to agree. happen. Totally agree. Totally know? agree. But then they're so short staffed. I mean, that they don't <laughs> yeah. have the ability, but I, I'm, I think we're on the same page. Yeah, for sure. And we just want them to succeed because I think there's so much hope. <laughs> it's like the hope for indie right. film really is tethered to these regional film festivals. But what I'm also just trying to say, too, is that like if you don't get into Sundance, you don't get into South by Southwest, you don't get into like the Big Ten or whatever you want to yeah. call it, like there's still value, value to a film festival run. You know, like you don't have to like, bail and right. you know just find another way to get your movie out there like you if can your still goals have... are to get screened if your goals are to f- connect with the audience but if your goals are to right. be sold or acquired that's not where we're at right now yeah but maybe there's but you can do both i don't know right like i mean i don't i think you can still go the route of like trying to get sold you know without making without a film festival run and still have you know a mid-tier film festival run right like they don't have to be mutually exclusive do they well, yeah, it's, as long as it's, I mean, that's the problem is like, I'll have films come to me and they'll be like, well, we didn't really make a big effort with film festivals, but we got into St. Louis International, which is a fine film festival. I'm not, you know, being mean to St. Louis International, but like one film festival versus zero film festival says something, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Or one, one mid-tier film festival surrounded by like a lot of lower tier film festivals communicate something else. So, yes, if it's an aggregate of a lot of mid-tier film festivals, you're in a good place. You're basically saying between one and zero, zero might be better. Sometimes. In certain yeah. certain cases. Yeah. Can't you just like not talk about it if you get into like small festivals? <laughs> yes. And just be like, don't <laughs> even like, pretend that it didn't exist? That's yeah, totally. I think that's, yes, absolutely. Yeah, I don't know. Maybe that's a lesson to be learned, too. It's like, if you don't get into worthwhile f- film festivals, just don't talk about it. You know, don't make it a big thing. Anyways, I think we should move on to this question you have, Liz. Like, hit me. Yeah. What is this thing you're going to talk about? Well, I wanted to know, what is the most exciting reaction someone can give you after they see your movie? <sighs> like, just period? Like, just general like, audience. Like, not a salesperson, not a manager or whatever, but just like a rando person 
or family or friend member? Like, is it that they said to you, well, Auric, it looked like a real movie. I always hear that. It looked like a real <laughs> movie. Or is there something else that you, that really is rewarding to you when you hear an audience member say something about your movie? I, I like it when they have a reaction to it that I didn't expect. So like if they say something where they like, oh, and I really love how you, you had this happen with your main character because I could tell that you thought that like this was what you're like, they, they come up with like a theory of like what they thought you were going for that maybe isn't at all what you're going for or is like maybe loosely. Yeah. What you're going for, but what I, I love it when people have like deep ideas of your movie that maybe I didn't even have, you know, or maybe that like were part of it, but like wasn't necessarily the main theme or the main core, but like were adjacent to it, you know, or if it made them think about like one of the things people have said after watching the alternate, it was like they always say, like, oh, it makes me think about what like you know the alternate Dave would do, like what all what would all Dave do in this situation, and like you know, what would. I be like as my other person and would I wouldn't meet my other self, you know, like, I don't know, it's fucked with my mind or whatever. Like when people talk to me about like that sort of ex experience, like walking out of the movie, I think that's pretty exciting. You know, he hearing the same old like, oh, it was good. Good job. Like, or yeah, it looks like a real movie. It's like, those are kind of some of the worst things you can hear. Although I think if someone says it looks like a real movie, I can't help but like be like, yeah, okay, cool. We did it. <laughs> Sweet. But yeah, what about you, Liz? What, what, what is the thing that excites you when you get people's reaction to your movie? I'm not sure. I was playing on answering it like by seeing what would come to me, but I know what I don't like. I don't like when people say things like, the casting was great, or I really love the music. Because that to me feels <laughs> like, oh, you didn't like the movie and you're glomming onto one thing that you, that you thought was okay. Like it was this, it felt like it was a peripheral comment. And mm. that they weren't responding to the core of the film. So I always take those really, I always think that they don't like the movie if they say things like great casting. I think I really like, or I like, I love when people write me and they overshare about their personal life and they say things like, <laughs> this happened to me and you, you totally captured what I felt like when this happened to me. And that always makes me feel really good because I'm like, oh, we went through the same thing. And that makes me feel like, I made the, I didn't make it in vain. You know, I made it to connect with another person who emotionally went through a very personal experience. So, yeah, that's nice. Yeah. There was another time on the alternate where like I, I was, we were at some film festival in, in London and there, there's like fans of the festival and they were like, okay, yeah, Soho horror top five, you know? And then like my movie would be somewhere on the top five and I'd be like, oh my God, they've, Pick my movie yes. to be in their top five with all these other movies. And, you know, or like when someone will say something like, oh, wow, totally original, unique sci-fi film. Oh, so glad I got to see it. And they'll like be about my movie and I'll just be like, my, my heart will melt, you know? And it's just like those kinds of little comments where you're just casually on a list. Like, I don't even have to be number one. Like, even if I'm on five on a top five, it's like, holy fuck, I made someone's top five at this festival they go to every year? Like... Oh my god, like that's incredible. And then I I engaged with a couple of those people on Twitter and I was like, "Oh, wow, thank you so much for watching the movie. I'm glad you liked it, you know." And like had a little mini dialogue with them and then like I sh I took a full screen cap of one and I put it on Facebook just cuz it was like <laughs> it was so cool. Like what they said about the movie was like like I couldn't pay someone to like write a better pull quote for me. It was just it was so perfect. I love that. So those are the kinds of movies. And then and also like in a review, if you like you read a review and then someone says something about it and it's just like, you're like, I can't believe that. Like, that was the goal. Like, you just, that was it. I can't believe that you just, that that's <laughs> what you took away from they it. They got you know? it. Yeah. And, or it just hit them in the way that, that I was hoping it would be, you know? Yeah. Someone in Italy called it like, you know, pure genre cinema or something like <gasps> that. And I was just like, Oh, that's like the best thing you could ever oh hear. My, you. Oh, my God. Yeah. It's the best thing I could ever hear. For someone to call the alternate pure genre cinema, I was like, okay, I can die now. Like, I'll, let me just go to heaven. It's cool. I check out. I'm good. <laughs> I think the reason I wanted to ask this was when we're not because you and I are like I'm in post on a short, but like we're we're kind of like pre projects right now. We're like yeah. in development and production. And I was just thinking it would be nice to talk about why we do it from the vantage point of like, what do we like to hear? And what's like the most rewarding thing to hear from someone? So it's just nice to remember the way your work has been received and be like, oh, yeah, I can keep going. I can keep going to hear something like that again. Yeah, totally. 
it does feel that way when you when you get someone say something so nice or so positive about your your project it's like ah yeah i'll keep going you know like that was great okay i can i think i can do better next time like i'll just keep doing it you know and yeah it does it's pretty sweet hey well with that if you want to send us a question, comment, or suggestion, you could do so by going to our email address, podcast at mickeymovesishard.com. You can send us whatever you want. We will read everything. Ulrich always responds. Or if you really like the show, you can leave a review on iTunes. That would be amazing. You can also check us out on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at MMIH Podcast. And we are still on YouTube at Making Movies This Hard Podcast, although we are less active on YouTube than we were before. But it still exists, and we're still putting it on there. And, you know, one day we'll have a show on YouTube that's a real show. Thanks so much to Christopher Cantwell for coming on the show. Thanks to our editor, Jeff Freimuth, for doing the editing. And thanks to our producer, Eric Toms, for being the awesomest producer ever and for setting us up with Christopher Cantwell in the first place. So thanks, Eric. And we'll talk to you all next week. 